Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, so I'm looking at my screen here. I look at my two tens on the treasuries. Uh, 55, 65, that's 70 basis points of inversion on the twos and tens. And, you know, I paid attention most days in business school when I was at Duke. And I remember learning that when the yield curve is inverted, that means a recession. And in fact, our next guest did some, uh, some pretty good work on that when he was a PhD guy at University of Chicago. Professor Cam Harvey joins us. He's a finance professor at Duke University, uh, the Fuqua School there. Uh, he was my professor when I was there at Duke. Cam, thanks so much for joining us here. I mean, you more than anybody have written about and showed the merits of this inverted yield curve, really signaling recessions. How about these days? Because it's been inverted for a while here. My economy seems pretty strong here on the east side of New York. What say you on that yield curve thing? Yeah, so it's interesting. So I guess, as you said, I'm the one that came up with the idea in my dissertation in 1986. And at the time, um, looking at data from 1968, it was four out of four in predicting recessions. Right. And uh, it even got the double dip, which nobody got. And then out of sample, it's had four inversions and followed by four recessions, including the global financial crisis. And now um, the 10 year minus three month, that's the one okay. that uh, I look at, um, it's inverted. And I'm basically making the case that this is a situation where it's likely a false signal. And there's a number so, of reasons uh, behind that. Okay, so just to sum it up, you're the one who found this indicator and you've proved it to be um, reliable in terms of predicting a recession. But now you're the one saying this indicator is not telling us that a recession is coming. So why? Well, the indicator is suggesting a recession, but the, re the reason is fairly simple. Uh, and that is that uh, the economy is very complex. And to think that you've got this model that is going to be perfect forever is really naive. The model looks at a single variable, uh, the difference between long-term yields and short-term yields. And, and to think that that single indicator is, is going to be perfect forever, uh, that's just not very scientific. So we know the world is complex, and this particular situation we're in, I think, is, uh, is far different uh, than previous uh, recessions. So we know that um, this time is different every time, but the degree of difference is, is pretty stark. In so what's, my what's, what's different now, Kim, uh, in the economy that may make this less predictive this time? Yeah, so there are basically six things that, oh that I look at. So 
Number one, and there's been much discussion about this, is the excess demand for labor. So that means that there's more job openings than uh, people unemployed, and the gap is large. Yep. And what that means is that even if the economy slows down even more, um, we'll be able to absorb those that get laid off. And even though unemployment will likely go up, it's not going to go up by that much. And that's a key indicator for uh, dating the business cycle. So we know that uh, that unemployment uh, is a lagging indicator for the business cycle. So you just can't say, well, unemployment's low, therefore it isn't a recession. It's always low before a recession. And that's not my point. My point is the excess capacity, the ability to absorb uh, people that are laid off um, is, is way different than, than past right. recessions. The second thing is the sort of layoffs that we're already seeing are like layoffs from, for example, the tech sector. And if you get laid off with a technology job at Twitter or Facebook, uh, you can easily uh, get replaced in the workforce. So you can get another placement and the duration of your unemployment is very short. Uh, so I think that that is also an issue. Number three, consumers are in a far better position uh, today than let's say before the global uh, financial crisis. So if you look, for example, in the housing sector, the amount of equity uh, versus debt or mortgage uh, is really high. So, so again, we can absorb a decrease in housing without causing the same sort of issues like in the global uh, financial uh, crisis. Number four is the financial sector is much stronger than it was, for example, before the global financial crisis. So the financial sector is unlikely to make things worse. Um, and number five is kind of an interesting one. My model uh, at the University of Chicago is about real yields. So not nominal yields. And we've got a situation today where the term structure of inflation expectations is very inverted, meaning the short-term expectations are far higher than the long-term. And that's kind of contributing to um, the inversion of the yield curve. And number six is, is very subtle, but it's very important. Given that my model is talked about now, and featured on Bloomberg Radio, <laughs> um, it affects people's behavior. So you would not have had me on the show in 2006 because it was a real niche sort of indicator, not mm. that well known. And that's true. Uh, I mean, we talk about it on Bloomberg Television as well. Yeah, for yeah, a long so, time it was every day for like three months. <laughs> that, that's right, but that did not happen uh, when the yield curve was inverted for like a year. Uh, before the global financial crisis. True, I was on that and, too. <laughs> and, yeah, so, so think about how it changes behavior. So suppose you're uh, like a CEO going before shareholders uh, in the middle of the global financial crisis, and you basically say, well, I was blindsided. Uh, we had no idea this recession was coming. And, and nor did my peers or competitors, everybody was blindsided. Uh, now today, that is pretty well impossible to do. So people know that the yield curve indicator is eight out of eight. So uh, if we do go into a recession, it's really hard for a CEO to make the case, well, I was totally surprised. We made this major investment thinking everything was gonna be okay. No, uh, you, you can't do that. 
in front of a record like eight out of eight. So what happens? Uh, businesses and consumers are more likely to engage in risk management when the yield curve is inverted. So they take actions before a recession actually happens. And we're seeing this like small layoffs, um, uh, you know, here and there where uh, companies are getting ready uh, for uh, a slowdown or basically stuff we don't see that is happening. Uh, companies deciding not to make major investments, right. delaying until there's more clarity in terms of, uh, you know, what's going to happen in terms of uh, the business cycle. Hey, so, so all can, of this. Uh, yeah. So, so j j just given that background, what do you think our Federal Reserve could do, should do over the next couple of meetings here? Yeah. So, so given that this is happening, that the yield curve is actually impacting behavior, people are engaging in risk management, uh, it actually reduces the chance that the signal, the inverted yield curve, is actually accurate in forecasting uh, a recession. So the major wild card here is the Fed. Yep. And the Fed was late to the game uh, with all of this talk about transitory inflation, and it didn't make any sense to so many people, including me. Uh, so they're very late to the game. And the major wild card here is whether the Fed is going to be late again. And what I mean by that is that they don't see that inflation's under control, they've slowed the economy, and they just continue uh, the rate hikes. Yep. There's no reason to continue the rate hikes right now. So think of the last six months, inflation's been essentially zero. It's been like 0.3% like over six months. So it, there's no, yep. we're talking about 25 basis points? No. Um, and, indeed, I thought the last hike was unnecessary. Okay. They need to back off. Back off. The That's... time to back off is now. Yeah, we understand that. Cam, thanks so much for joining. Uh, Cam Harvey, Professor of Finance at the Fuqua School of Business at Duke University. Uh, he taught me. I learned a thing or two. I tried to, you know, it's some tough stuff he had, man. Lots of math. And I was taught there wasn't going to be math in this course. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Last week out in Vegas, they had what's probably the biggest convention they have every year out there. It's got to be close to it. Consumer Electronics Show, CES. Like a couple hundred thousand tech geeks from literally all over the world descend upon Vegas to to see all the new technology. But what it's really evolved into over the last 10, 15 years has been an auto show with some gadgets around it. Um, And the auto uh, manufacturers have really taken over because really the auto companies have become technology companies. Um, Kevin Tynan, our auto analyst, he was out there with Michael Dean, who covers autos as well, from London. There are Kevin Tynan's our senior automotive analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. He's calling in from our beautiful Princeton campus. It's a campus down there, Matt. It's not just a building. Uh, Kevin, talk to us about Vegas, the auto companies, CES. What's your big takeaway from what Detroit is doing uh, in the desert of Las Vegas? Yeah, it wasn't, wasn't a huge domestic manufacturer presence there, unless uh, I would say the two biggest were Mercedes-Benz and um, the Stellantis brands, which you could argue are right. still, still Dodge Chrysler, um, you know, but they, they, they did show a lot of international stuff, the new Ram pickup. So uh, it was connected, autonomous, and electric-focused but those are really the two biggest uh, presentations or displays that you saw there. Um, similar to Detroit back in September, you know, there, there was about five automakers total there. And I think the markets really changed a little bit. And, uh, you know, that presence is down significantly. Have you driven the TRX, speaking of Ram? Uh, I have, yeah. But back a while ago. Unbelievable pre- truck. Pre-production. That is a thoroughly really? American truck. <laughs> you're a truck guy. I'm a car guy. I mean, <laughs> look, even if you're not a truck guy, it has 700 horsepower. Oh, yeah. I mean, That's a lot, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, now, electric vehicles will have that much and more. Really? Frankly. Yes. See, I think the... I, I don't know about the um, so you still the Ford you still measure it as horsepower when yes. it's electric okay but the, I know that the Chevy Silverado EV has oh, almost baby. 700 horsepower yeah. and almost as much torque as well anyway it doesn't doesn't matter it's neither here nor there the thing is to me today the story Kevin Tesla cutting prices is like the first sign that the dam is breaking can all of these automakers because they're all falling in sympathy with Tesla can they hold or will they all have to start cutting prices? I don't think any of the legacy automakers are really concerned about what Tesla is doing with their pricing. I think break-even um, in the key regions, uh, certainly in North America, is considerably lower. And I, when I say break-even, I mean in terms of a total market value, you know, uh, uh, market share number. You know, that that could be as low as 12 million units now. Um, so, look, the, the 
when this market was at its peak, when the U.S. was at its peak in 2016, it was 17 and a half million units. Uh, we're talking about maybe 14 million for 2023. Wow. But, but different margins. The, different right, margins. Here's the difference, right? In 27, uh, 2016, average transaction price was $35,000. In December, average transaction price was 48.5. Right. We're we're heading to a $50,000. Uh, transaction price market here. So when you look at that revenue pool, it's actually 80 to $100 billion larger now than what it was at its volume peak. So I think everybody focuses on, oh my gosh, the market's smaller by three and a half million units. Here comes prices falling through the floor. And I don't think that's the case because the revenue pool is actually bigger well, fine. to the better mix. But our are other prices falling? I mean, is Tesla cutting prices because they were simply wildly overpriced, or are they cutting prices because they have a specific demand problem that's not industry-wide? Well, look what they've done with capacity additions, right? They're opening factories. You know, essentially, if you rewind, you take your free capital that you got for being a trillion-dollar automaker, and you start opening factories or building factories all over the world – and I would argue you don't really have the demand for that kind of capacity at this point. So um, where they would argue they were supply constraint for all this time, it looks like that is not the case anymore. Where other automakers have gone the other way, right? They've, they've either converted production capacity from internal combustion to electrification, or they've taken those costs out completely. Kevin, just, you know, I don't know much about this business, but do I, if I'm a GM and I've got a internal combustion engine factories plant somewhere can i convert that to electric and if so how long does it take and what's the cost and are they in fact doing that yeah well hamtramck uh, in michigan is you know was uh you know a traditional internal combustion plant that'll supposedly be all electric um yeah so certainly possible look the Tesla's Fremont plant was a, a Toyota and General Motors joint venture, right? Okay. Uh, New United Manufacturing, uh, which Tesla probably got for less than you paid for your house, and uh, you know, and becomes tents and EVs rolling around all over the place. Definitely less than Paul paid for his house. Probably a little <laughs> more than I paid for my house. Hey, is there any chance that Porsche is going to cut prices twenty percent on the nine eleven? Because I would like that. I think absolutely not. I think everybody, you know, I was just looking at the December numbers and, you know, in the U.S. at least, average transaction price for Mercedes-Benz is up in the 70s. Wow. Acura is $55,000, which was where Mercedes and BMW were not that long ago, you know, maybe 2020, 2021. I didn't even know they so, still made cars at Acura. Yeah, exactly, right? So any of that stuff that was... Uh, affordable, low margin, or unprofitable is just dead. You know, so if there's a finite amount of chips, where are you going to put them? In your highest trim levels or your most profitable vehicles? And is, is is there still a finite number of chips out there? Haven't we solved the chip thing? Uh, yeah, I never thought it was a thing, but oh, I okay. think I, I always thought it was an excuse to say, like, hey, we're <laughs> we're we're enriching our mix to our most profitable stuff. If we could only get more of those darn well, chips, we, you know, we Okay, but there's still, there is still a finite yeah. am, n yeah. amount of chips. It's the, 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 the car chips yep. are still in short supply. Okay. PC yeah. chips, we're like puking them up. <laughs> okay. Um, so, but are, are there any car makers that you think are at risk who, you know, have raised prices too far too fast? 
uh, other than the EV guys. No, yeah. no, I don't. I, it's, it's, Rivian, you know, I, I use the configurator and occasionally put together a nice R1S. Love the look. Would love to drive one. They're pretty pricey. Are they overpriced? Ford, the Lightning that Paul was in, awesome truck. thousand dollars was the awesome sticker. truck, but very expensive. You know, um, GM's Hummer is like a hundred. I don't know how much it is. It's like so, Kevin. Just money. To, Kevin, just to reiterate, I did drive a pickup truck. Yes. There you go. Yep. See, you are, go. are any of those prices going to come down? Well, look. Here's the question: Is which you know what's your supply demand balance, yeah, right? So yeah. it's in 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 a vacuum. Prices are what prices are, but the the your supply demand balance is what's going to determine that. And my argument is, if you're a pure play EV uh, builder right now, you might have a problem with that balance. If you're anybody else, internal combustion, you don't have a problem with that balance. All right, all right, good stuff. I mean, good we point. can talk to Kevin all day on this. Good point. Car stuff. Uh, Kevin Tynan, senior automotive analyst uh, for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, he and uh, uh, Michael Dean in London, they are just all over the global uh, auto space. They were out in Vegas uh, last week for the CES conference. Again, a lot of the auto uh, companies out there showing off the technology platforms that they have that also sit on four wheels, so they're autos. It is Banks Day, so that means it is Allison Williams Day. She covers all the banks for Bloomberg Intelligence. So, Allison, the stocks had uh, traded off on the news here, kind of turning a little bit positive here. I don't know. I, I kind of was looking through some of the some of the notes and some of the uh, some of your research and some of the reporting. I mean, it, the business is cranking. Yes, they're being a little cautious going forward, but as Matt was just noting, they're pulling in huge amounts of net interest income. The fee income wasn't great. I know it's all relative to expectations, but the absolute numbers seem staggering. The numbers are good, and I think, um, to your point, it is the, the net interest income expectations um, that has investors a little bit disappointed. And, you know, to some extent, management could be being conservative. Jamie Dimon says they're not being conservative. But there's a lot of questions out there, um, and that's why, you know, the calls are being dominated by questions around what are your assumptions for deposit pricings, what are your what assumptions for the economy, et cetera. Because, you know, the, the good news that we had this year, it was several Fed hikes. Um, you know, now we're starting to see banks getting pressure to raise what they're paying depositors. And, and that's the squeeze we're going to be getting in 2023. And it, it's tough to estimate. So I think the banks are trying to be conservative. They're trying to you, give one quarter of guidance and getting boxed into a full year out. You ever play Euchre or, or Spades? Because it seems to me like Jamie Dimon is sandbagging. All the time, that guy is sandbagging. You know, there's a hurricane coming. We've got to batten down the hatches. This is going to be a horrible recession. Under-promise and over-deliver, right? That's more than under-promise. <laughs> That's like he, he's always setting us up for a lower bar. Is that is he doing that now? Because hasn't he walked back the hurricane comments? Well, I think, I think it is um, – you know, I think it's prudent for banks, right? You want them to be prudent and conservative. You don't want them okay. to giving a pie in the sky um, estimates. I mean, it, that was a little interesting last year, how quickly he changed his, you know, quote, weather forecast. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, I, I think the, the point he was trying to make, um, even we though we all, we all focused on the weather they forecast, want. but, <laughs> you know, he was making the point that, look, we ha we, we're fine. Like, whatever happens, we're, we're fine. And I think that's... Uh, you know, if you look at the pre-tax, pre-provision profit, so what they're earning outside of those credit costs, 
uh, they're well covered. And in fact, this quarter, 20% return on tangible equity. That's that's pretty remarkable in a tough environment. They beat their return on equity target um, this year. They could probably beat that next year. And, and to me, that is really the area of, of focus versus um, you know, versus cyclical pressures. But much has been said, Allison, about all of the bad leverage loan debt that these banks have. Paul and I talked about it all yep. year in 2022. So if anybody was blindsided, they weren't watching Bloomberg TV or listening to Bloomberg Radio. Um, do we see that borne out in these earnings? Is, has anyone uh, come out and said, man, we got crushed by all this horrible Tesla debt? Um, or have they so, hedged? Have they dealt with it? They, ha I, I think they have dealt with it. Um, you know, th there's there's likely some hit somewhere that we're not we're not seeing. Um, just you know, banks have to report things depending on the degree of importance to their earnings, right? And so we did see them call out some things in the second quarter, in the third quarter, si you know, mostly radio silent. Um, this quarter, we're not hearing much of anything. Keep in mind that the credit markets in general were very good last quarter. So there were opportunities to hedge. There were opportunities to, to do some things. And maybe that's how they managed down some of the risks. We did see um, Jeffries um, in the beginning of this week, which seems a long time ago now. <laughs> um, they did report a, a sort of a $38 million you know, hit in their quarter ending November. So a small hit. But I, in general, the business is so much uh, smaller for the banks than it was uh, at the time of the financial crisis. It's probably about 20% of that size, and banks have been aggressively managing it down all year. Sorry, Twitter debt is what I meant. Yeah, yeah, way, yeah. Not Tesla debt. Remember, we, I mean, yep. yeah, they of had, course. what, 12, 13 billion dollars yep. of bad Twitter yep. loans? They Maybe they had to write it. those down, and it seemed like that could be a story. Uh, but we uh, haven't seen it yet. But it hasn't really. been yet. All right. J.P. Morgan Chase Chief Executive Officer Jamie Dimon called the firm's botched acquisition of college financial planning website Frank a, quote, huge mistake and valid to share takeaways at a later date. I didn't know what that meant. I went back to read Matt Levine's Money Stuff column, which is a must read every day. Set an alert for that, as I do. And he it was basically just, just fraud here. But I... The, the question I have is, you know, basically buying this company, Frank, was to get access to, you know, basically lists of, you know, teenagers, college age kids. Is that a big issue for banks to attract some new customers here? I mean, I, I can't think how they do it. I mean, do you, do you try to get these teenagers and, and young adults? I think the banks are always trying to, you know, get consumers as soon as they can in their in their life cycle. Uh, some of the way that they do that sometimes is is in the credit card business. Um, definitely with the rise of fintech and digital offerings, um, right. these banks that have been around a long time want to make sure that they are on top of you know anything that new that it's coming out. They're they're the incumbents and they want to stay that way. Yep. Um, dis disruption tends not to come from the incumbents, so I think that they're just. You know they're they're careful and they're watching. Uh, Jamie Dimon and uh, has said that they want to do acquisitions, but they've done very few. They've right. done a lot of these small little acquisitions. Um, this one working out is is not giving them um, very good press. But um, but you know we think that they still they still have an appetite for next year. Just um, all right. So for re retail banking, 
here in our Bloomberg HQ headquarters at 59th and Lex, Capital One opened up a new quote-unquote branch. And it is a beautiful space. There's a lot of space. But I would say 80% of the space is a coffee shop with couches. And maybe 20% is I can actually go up to a teller and, I don't know, cash a check or something. ING did that as well. I know. And there were no tellers. It was just a coffee shop. I didn't get it. <laughs> it is It is the changing uh, nature of branches. So, uh, uh, you know, two things on that. One of which is we, we know that branches have been shrinking the number of branches. Yep. And then the the branches that the banks do keep are more, more sales focused, right? So they they don't want you necessarily, they don't want you coming in and uh, cashing a check. They want you to do that on your phone. They do want you to come in and, you know, think about a private banking account or wealth services and things like that. So, um, and, and the other part of it is banks, and, and this was actually something that uh, Charles Schwab, I think, learned this lesson and taught us this lesson a long time ago, which is people do want to see the name. They, mm-hmm. they do want to see the branch. They want to see the name. They want to maybe have coffee yep. there. But um, they, want it, they want something solid to know where their money is. And so it's very difficult, I think, to be all digital. And that's how they're keeping their brand out well, there. Well, it's interesting. On another thing that I know that your banks that you cover are, are dealing with at this time of year, plus with a slowing economy, is layoffs. And, and uh, the Wall Street Journal is out with a story right now. The Bank of New York Mellon plans to cut about 3% of its workforce this year, some 1,500 jobs. Uh, we've seen it before from Goldman Sachs and Morgan State. What, what's the feeling? Is 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 the banking system just just too big, too bloated in terms of headcount? I think it's just it's you know as you know it's that time of year. Yep. yep. And it is interesting, you know, Bank of New York Mellon and BlackRock. Uh, th- those are sort of the, the a couple of announcements that we've had over the past week. We also had the Goldman News, but obviously that's that's a little broad and going right. into businesses outside the core. So asset managers uh, making some cuts, investment banks, you know, a couple percent here and there is is something that we would expect. It's it's interesting that the headcount has actually gone up um, at a couple of the banks. Right. Uh, again, we're going to want to dig through and see, you know, where they're adding heads because that 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 sometimes is a symbol for growth, and sometimes it's it is related to acquisitions. G, uh, Goldman Sachs had uh, over 5,000 jobs added this year. A lot of those were due to acquisitions, um, and now they're cutting back. All right, good stuff. Uh, Allison Williams, busy, busy day, uh, covering all the research on all the conference calls, making herself available to Bloomberg Television, Bloomberg Radio, Bloomberg News, sharing her analysis. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Boy, after a bruising 2022, people are looking for what strategies, what factors may be the way to go in 2023. And some folks are talking about value investing. So we want to break that down. We're going to roundtable this thing. Francis O, CEO of Craft Technologies, and Sean O'Hara, president of Pacer ETFs. Uh, they join us uh, via the phone here. Francis, uh, uh, thanks for joining us. I want to start with you here. Talk to us about how you guys at Craft Technologies, how you're viewing 2023 after what was for most investors, whether your equity or fixed income was just a brutal 2022. Yeah, it's totally like uh, the 2020 was a 2022 was a really bad market for both equity and fixed income, and uh, I still believe the I mean the worst may be over um, the, compared to the the really worst point of compared of the the 2022nd, but the still the the huge amount of uncertainty is uh, is around the market, and especially if we talk about the equity, um, the strategies, what factors may be. Delivering better performance this year, I still the way on the the value could be better, delivering against the the, the growth strategies uh, for the last one year of the period. It, uh, the value actually outperforming uh, large cap value perspectives outperforming the uh, 25% point over the, the large cap growth strategy. Uh, it is because of the uh, fundamental changes while you are seeing the macro or uh, the market of the obvious ending of the uh, zero interest rate policy environments uh, for the first time over the last 15 years. And we are still, like it, we like it or not, we have to embrace the, the that macro environments in the uh, quite a time, at least in the 2023, uh, then it probably be a, the, uh, better um, the posing um, the interest uh, or the, the, the eyesight into the, the, the value strategy in this year as well. Okay, Sean. Sean, what's what's your take on uh, 2023? What's what's your outlook here? Well, thanks for having me. First off, it's great to be with you guys. We had a really a solid 2022 in our uh, value suite. Uh, the cash cows in the U.S. version was essentially flat for the year, which if you think about the backdrop, you know, being the broad market down 19 and traditional value being down double digits as well, or maybe high single digits. Uh, our view isn't really changing. We follow free cash flow and free cash flow yield, and free cash flow yield is just a measure of how much you pay for a company in total versus how much cash return you get on an annual basis. We think the higher that yield or the more money for the amount you pay is the way to identify cheap stocks in this world today. You know, the the composition of the U.S. stock market has been changing for four decades. It's mostly based now on intangible assets, not tangible assets. And so traditional value uses price to book, but there's no real solid book value left anymore. And so free cash flow, we think, is a better way to do that. And so it shifted our portfolios last year away from tech and consumer discretionary and into energy and into healthcare care um, and materials. We picked up the inflation trade there on all sides. 
Uh, we're entering 2023 the same exact way. We're overweight energy, we're overweight materials, and we're overweight healthcare. We have started to move a little bit higher on tech, but but on names that you know like Intel and things like that, not on the big sort of mammoth tech names. I'm hoping that they get you know cheap enough, you know, as this market sort of settles down, that we get a chance to include some of them in the portfolios. But in this environment, not much is changing, so you have still have to be careful. The Fed is still committed to raising rates. Inflation is still a problem, although less of a problem today. And so whenever you have those two things going on, the overall market PE has to shrink. It's been shrinking for a year now. There's still potentially some room to shrink. And so using this free cash flow and free cash flow yield screen allows you to buy companies at single-digit PEs that actually earn more than the broad market in terms of earnings growth, pay competitive dividends. And so that's a place where we think investors would be better served than buying the broad market going into 2023 and maybe even beyond. Hey, Francis, I know in your ETF, it's the Kraft AI-enhanced U.S. Next Value, the symbol's NVQ. In January, in the rebalance, you added financials, added consumer discretionary, and removed the allocation to energy. Give us a sense of kind of what yeah. you were thinking there in January. Yeah, um, so um, the, I, I really love to... Um, the also echoing the uh, what Shen said about the, the intangible assets um, uh, in terms of the, how to evaluate the company's uh, intrinsic value, uh, the conventional the value approach only like the price to book ratios. It only uh, not only is uh, is mostly capturing the uh, the tangible asset, which is able to easily able to the, taking out the information from the the, the, the book, uh, the, but. As the our the daily life is changing and the corporate activity changing, how the people are seeing the uh, company's valuation, the metrics is changing right now. The uh, much bigger part of the, the the company's valuation is coming from intangible asset, and we are using the artificial intelligence to try to tackle down to evaluate the uh, the better estimation of the corporate's uh, the intrinsic value, um, utilizing the massive amount of the. Uh, the big data at the same time trying to focus on the the company's IP and the um, the brand loyalty etc. Um, uh, which can be applied to the the most of tech company nowadays. But anyway, um, the, the, our model is uh, we do the rebalancing on monthly basis. We do take the both tangible and intangible asset uh, into the core metrics of our the, the AI models of this is making process. But in this month, by processing the macro data. Uh, and the fundamental data, price data, the RAM will make some bold move. Um, the one of the um, the, the core uh, contributor uh, contributing sector of our MVQ ETF last year was the energy. Uh, but this month, uh, after the, the rebalancing, our model is of pretty much of the uh, doing the profit taking periods. But at the same time, right. we start to increase substantially into the, the financial sector, especially into regional banking. Um, uh, under the environment of the, of the higher interest rate regime. So, and so Sean, on the, on you guys do something a little bit different. Energy, at the December rebounds, you increase your energy allocation. Why? Because the free cash flow in the energy sector is continuing to grow. Like, you know, if you look at Chevron as an example, Chevron's free cash flow and earnings are still grow, going up faster than their stock price. Um, so we had a very nice performance in our energy sector last year. We made a lot of money, but we continue to make a lot of money in this energy sector because in spite of the price of oil, 
the amount of free cash flow these energy companies are generating because of the reduction in capital expenditure, it's not poking holes in the ground anymore kind of randomly, that money all flows to the bottom line. And so until that formula changes for us, until their earnings and their free cash flow go up slower than their stock price or until their stock price catches up to that free cash flow and earnings growth, we'll probably remain you know, overweight energy. We're also overweight healthcare, and we're overweight healthcare again because they're generating a lot of free cash flow. But healthcare as a sector is a pretty nice defensive play because it's one of the only sectors the last ten years where their earnings and free cash flow went up faster than their overall stock prices. Earnings the last decade or so went up about 167 percent on on healthcare, and the stock prices only went up about 100 percent. Whereas if you look at tech, the earnings went up 185 percent, but the stock prices went up 250. So in an environment where we're not sure about the economy and we're still going to have an aggressive Fed and inflation is still going to be a problem, it's it, it may be a better place to be from a defensive perspective to own stocks and sectors who have not outpaced their free cash flow growth and have not outpaced their earnings growth. And that's essentially what the CALS ETF, COWZ, does yep. Uh, on a quarterly basis. And Sean, you know, I, I noticed in your holdings, Meta is one of your top 10 holdings, and I'd love to get your call there, but boy, there's so much noise around that name. Do you guys try to tune out that noise and, and kind of just focus on the free cash flow? That, that, that's it. I mean, you know, like, um, you know, am I, I'm hoping the whole, you know, mega tech sector actually comes to us like Meta did, because, like, you know, they're high quality names. I mean, mega generates huge, I mean, Meta not mega meta generates a huge amount of free cash flow. So that's why it's screened in. We don't even look at, you know, what the company does. If it's in the Russell 1000 and it's not a financial and it's profitable, it has a chance of screening into our 100 stock portfolio based on that free cash flow yield. And that's how meta wound up in the portfolio. And, you know, what's interesting is that, you know, this is a strategy that tends to trade at a lower P to the market. But whenever we get to this bottom of the market, Typically, we wind up picking up even more high-quality names that grow faster than their peers. And so we tend to bounce better off these bottoms because of the selection process by using free cash flow and free cash flow yield. All right, good stuff, guys. Talking value investing uh, on the ETF front. Sean O'Hara, president of Pacer ETFs. And Francis O, CEO of Craft Technologies. Well, we've all been talking about inflation, inflation, inflation. And you step back and you say, boy, there should be an ETF for that. And guess what? There is. And our next guest has it. David Schlassler, uh, Portfolio Manager and Head of Quantitative Investment Solutions at Van Eck. He joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. David, talk to us about your ETF that kind of tracks this inflation thing Rax. that we're all dealing with. R-A-A-X. We created that ETF based on the view that we were going to eventually have a period of high inflation. So we Good went call. back, yeah. we went, we were talking about inflation before inflation was cool. When inflation was 1.4% with the extreme monetary debasement, we were saying that, listen, we think inflation's gonna, gonna come and we think it's gonna be out of control. Um, that happened. We think now inflation's likely to fall from here, but we think it's gonna stay elevated for a long period of time. Our, we break with consensus in the sense that once inflation materializes at the levels it has now, it typically sticks around for a very, very long period of time. The idea that it goes to 2% tomorrow, not very likely based right. off historical standards. So think about buying assets that can benefit from that regime. Commodities benefit from supply, demand, imbalances. We believe that we're likely in the early stages of an extended commodity super cycle. Commodities run in extended periods of time. So think of 20-year cycles. We think we're in the early stages of that. So 
we have significant exposure, up to around 50% what we call resource assets. So about 20% in commodity futures, the rest of it in resource equities. These are companies that benefit from higher commodity prices. Think of exploration production companies, companies that benefit from extracting, sourcing, distributing commodities, right? That's about half of the fund. Let's talk about the other half, financial assets, gold bullion, gold equities. Gold equities are obviously a more speculative play on gold. Mm -hmm. But if you find yourself in a situation where governments are debasing their currencies like mad, historically, that store of value assets been gold. People got really bummed out about gold because gold hasn't performed as well as a lot of people would have hoped. Right. But if you look back at historical cycles, gold actually performs a lot better at the later end of the cycle, meaning that it takes a while for people to realize they have a problem. At first, when, when you're faced with, with a new regime, a new, a new event, your tendency is to think, well, it's going to go way back down to how it used to be. Well, what if, right, it actually just takes a few years to change our psyche to understand we actually have a pretty significant inflation problem, and history tells us it's not likely to go away. Right. We've seen gold rally from, uh, I think it was like 1600 in November to over 1900 today. Um, what, what uh, I'm looking at racks and I see 74 basis points expense ratio. It's pretty punchy. Um, what, what's your competition? Where are comp where's our competition? What's Who your is competition? Our yeah, what's your competition, you know, and, and what are you doing to best them? Our competition are commodity funds, straight natural resource equity funds, and people that invest in individual securities that maybe aren't commodity related, but people that believe can maintain strong profit margins. Right. Our differentiation point is really simple. Own the broad-based key categories and diversify and be able to maintain a constant inflation hedge throughout the cycle. So that's why we are about half resource assets, 25, 30% financial assets, gold bullion, gold equities, and the rest in income generating real assets. So, and why own this over PIT? Because you have a commodities fund, right? The PIT is your uh, Van Eck commodity strategy fund. I also manage PIT, which is our actively managed commodity ETF that just recently launched. So I don't think it's Just either launched last month? Yes, I don't think it's either or, I think it's both. Commodities are great during a period of supply demand imbalances. Listen, the, the war between Russia and Ukraine took the inflation problem. We were on one trajectory, now we're on a completely different. Once you have massive commodity producers and their powerful allies at odds with each other, the structural imbalances because the underinvestment in commodities are likely to live on for an extended period of time. So we're not saying don't buy one or the other, we're saying buy both. Racks is a great way to buy both because when you buy it, you're getting right now around a 20% allocation to PIT, which is the commodities fund. So, but I mean, the narrative now is that inflation has slowed. Still high, and like you said, we're not gonna go to 2% tomorrow, but you know, we were freaking out about it before. We were raising 75 basis points at a meeting. Now, we're looking at 25 and expecting to plateau at some point. So, hasn't that kind of calmed down? It has, and we think inflation is going to continue to fall, and we think that this is pretty much par for the historical book in the sense of inflation runs hot and cold, peaks and troughs. If you look at the historical inflation cycles, look at the 40s, look at the 1970s, you get peaks of inflation, and then you get troughs. You could even go into disinflationary, deflationary events, and then it pops back up. What we're saying is that we believe, based off of history and what we're seeing today, because right now we're fighting inflation through demand destruction. That's not a long-term game plan given how much debt that we have. So we don't think we can keep interest rates at these levels for an extended period of time. So we think eventually, unfortunately, not soon, but eventually, we roll into recession triggered by higher interest rates. We're forced to pivot down. 
the inflationary forces that are still there boil back up ah. high performing or excuse me, highly sensitive inflation fighting assets. Those that actually benefit continue to outperform. That's our base case. All right. So we got racks. We got pit. What else do we have at Vanek? We are firm believers right now, and this is an exact opposite view of what we had. So, so I, for one, was particularly bearish on yielding assets because super low yields and a lot of interest rates adjustments on the way. That's changed. So when I sit here and I think about interest, inflation likely peaked and continuing to fall, and I look at the yields offered in the market, I get excited. And that's why we have Inc., which is the dynamic high-income ETF that I also manage, which invests across the board trying to find diversified high-yield solutions. So think of equities that are high-yielding. Think of high-yield bonds. Think of internationally international high-yield bonds. So what we're trying to do is give you a diversified allocation of high-yielding assets and remain, remain flexible, right? Adjust those allocations over time based off the risk and rewards in the market. And every, when I say risk and rewards, we, are, we run everything from a quantitative tilt, meaning that observed risks in the market. So assets acting up, being very, very volatile, those make us nervous. Assets that are more stable, more consistent, those make us more excited. And that's basically how we bias our portfolios to and from different assets. With still a very juicy yield. I see INC is the ticker, net indicated yield of more than 8%. And you're saying limited risk with this ETF? As much as we can. We, we, we limit risk on all of this, the strategies that we offer with, within our group through diversification. At the end of the day, we, we, we express views and we, ex we express them firmly, but at the end of the day, we're always well diversified. And this has a pretty low expense ratio for the class of ETF, 43 basis points. Yes, we're excited about it. We think it's super competitive. What's the next thing you guys are thinking about uh, in terms of maybe <laughs> some advantages here? Break the news here. Yes. <laughs> we're, we're, our, our founder, Jan Van Eck, and started with his father, always talks about our shop as a macro shop. So it's not a coincidence that high-yielding assets, right, Inc., commodities, PIT we just launched, the inflation allocation ETF, which has been out there for some time, those are out there because we think that that's the regime. So the funds that we're working on have been fo focused towards that. How, how do we generate this high yield to generate a positive real yield? And how do we benefit from real assets and the expansion of commodities? So right. that's the stuff that we're working on. Good stuff. David Shashler, Portfolio Manager and Head of Quantitative Investment Solutions at VanEck. We got Racks, we got Pitt, and we got Inc. Uh, right now, maybe some more to come uh, looking at these markets. And he joins From us here really a legendary. I mean, Jan yes. Van Eck and his father uh, started a uh, really legendary shop. Yeah, good stuff. So we appreciate uh, David coming in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.